When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. You know what I think would improve the show? What? If the often over drinks was also an often over charcuterie. <laughs> I've been wondering, you know, idea. if we're trying to like recreate uh, like a bar stool-like mm-hmm. atmosphere among friends... I feel like we, we've got the drinks thing down, yeah. but oftentimes there's at least little snacks to nibble on. You can tell, listener, that it's a Tuesday, which means Zach is starving because he's been in meetings all day. <laughs> yeah. T- what's on my mind today, folks? Uh, food. I, I do think it would be also bad because then you these microphones are so close, you'd have to listen to us chew, which yeah. is just No terrible. one wants that. So drinks it is for now. And this week, we, we're kind of scraping at the bottom of the barrel, or at least I am. <laughs> we, uh, we're still making our way through some stuff that was left uh, before the pandemic started. Um, and so there's a couple beers that are just lying around in cabinets that May or may not be expired. May or may not be expired, um, but we let no no good thing go to waste. Um, Ashley's got a Coors Light, and it says it's expired, but the mountains are still blue. Yeah. Um, and I'm drinking a leftover Spencer Trappist Ale, which is like really, really nice beer made yeah, by can't uh, let that go to waste. Trappist Monks in Spencer, Massachusetts, which was sent by a listener. So um, thank you very much, and cheers, cheers to this week's show. Yep. And who are we talking to this week, Zach? This week, we're talking to our good friend, Molly Burhans, who is the founder and executive director of Goodlands. That name might be familiar. We talked to Molly way back in, I think, 2017, uh, back before she was getting profiled by The New Yorker and meeting Pope Francis and speaking at COP26, the climate conference this weekend. Yeah, she's really, (laughs) really impressive and uh, a role model for young Catholics everywhere, I think. Um, Some of these environmental honors she won are are just huge, right? She's um, been honored by National Geographic, by the Sierra Club. Um, And as you mentioned, she's she's giving a talk uh, this week at the COP26 conference. Right. So her her whole thing is mapping the Catholic Church. And, you know, you would think that maybe people had been doing this for for centuries. The Catholic Church is pretty good about, you know, (laughs) maps, if you've ever been to the Vatican. And records and records mm -hmm. in general. Um, But but they had not moved that into the digital age at all, which Molly is helping them to do. That's right. You might the Catholic Church has, you know, it's one of the largest landholders, if not the largest landholder in the world. And so if we were all on the same page about how we use that land, we could do a lot of good things. But Molly's helping us figure out what we know, what we don't know with the work that she's doing. So we talked to Molly about um, her her work as a, a Catholic map lady, as she sometimes calls herself, um, her interactions with the Vatican, and kind of the frustration of you know, people like the Sierra Club and National Geographic uh, totally get how, and the New Yorker totally get how important this work is. And, you know, the Vatican just being this giant bureaucracy that 
totally doesn't necessarily understand how important the work that she's doing is. And so we talked to Molly about some of that frustration and, and why she stays Catholic despite all of that. But before we get to the conversation with Molly Burhans, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So you are, if you are listening to this on Friday morning, then you probably just heard some news that uh, Joe Biden, president of the United States, our second Catholic president, had a meeting with Pope Francis at the Vatican today. So we're recording this on Tuesday. So we we don't know what they talked about, but we figured we could still bring up the story with a little bit of historical context about popes and presidents. Yes. So the more recent history, the relationship between Joe Biden and Pope Francis is mostly a you know, they seem like they get along pretty well. On the day of Joe Biden's inauguration this past January, Pope Francis said sent a letter to him saying he was praying for him and praying that God would guide him in his decision-making as president. And Pope Francis also waded into the communion and abortion debate later this year. Yeah, he did not necessarily insert himself into this debate, but was asked about it by uh, America Magazine on the papal plane. And he, uh, as listeners probably know, the U.S. bishops are debating how to deal with the question of pro-choice politicians, of which Joe Biden is one of, and the question of whether they should receive communion. Pope Francis has said he's never denied communion to anyone. And so that was seen as sort of a pretty implicit. Right. And that bishops should treat politicians like this as as pastors and not as as politicians. Yes. And so that's the most recent history. But the, the history in general of popes and presidents is kind of a fascinating one because you, students of history might know that some of our founders were not big fans of the Catholic Church and especially the pope. No, no. There is a lot of concern that Catholics would not be loyal to the United States and would, you know, would take their orders from the pope. And so when the first president to meet a pope, uh, President Woodrow Wilson, a Catholic aide of his suggested that he visit the Vatican. And Wilson was a little reluctant. He did. He was a son of a Presbyterian minister and he didn't really like this idea. And then when he did meet Pope Benedict the Fifteenth, um, who was you know begging for peace in the face of World War One, uh, Wilson was uh, not exactly pleased with the encounter one and of, rejected that call. Yeah, became one of the first presidents <laughs> to reject a pope's call for peace yeah. in the face of war. Um, other notes of historical import: uh, LBJ gave Pope Paul the Six a a bust of himself. Yeah, so a statue of his own face. Uh, so that was that was weird. <laughs> Which I googled that after I saw that fact, and apparently he didn't just give L- LBJ gave these busts to like hundreds of people. Like there are presidents and statements all over the world who have busts of LBJ. So man, I maybe hope- not <laughs> modeling the humility that Pope Ho- Francis would like to see. hope to get to a point though where I can just give that out as Christmas gifts, <laughs> just statues of my own face. Um, so that's LBJ. Ronald Reagan uh, met with John Paul II uh, after a night of not a lot of sleep and was uh, visibly nodding off during their meeting. That uh, said, they did have a very good relationship. They were both kind of Cold War warriors in the yes. fight against communism back in the 80s. So those are so those are just a couple fun Pope and President facts from history. Um, But this is also not Joe Biden's first Pope that he's interacted with. No. So he first met a Pope way back in 1980. 
So 20, nope, 40 years ago. <laughs> 80s were 40 years ago, yep. not 20. Yep. Back when Joe Biden was just a 37-year-old senator who wrote a paper about what what might happen to Poland, which was, of, cor- of course, very close to uh, John Paul's heart um, if the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeah. And so Pope John Paul II is like, ah, I got to meet this guy um, and kept telling, you know, teasing Joe Biden about how young he was. Um, and then in 2011, as vice president, uh, Biden met Pope Benedict. Um, and he actually talked to our boss, Father Matt Malone, um, in an interview that they did, had in 2015 about what it was like for Biden and Benedict to meet. They talked in particular on how to apply church teaching if you're a politician, uh, especially on issues like abortion. Be- and he said, quote, it was like going back to theology class. But he also said it was very, it wasn't like a uh, harsh teaching. It was it was an interesting, it was theology class in the best sense of a, a good back and forth. Yes. And so that brings us to Pope Francis, who Biden has met several times, first at Francis's installation in 2013, um, then when Pope Francis came to the United States, uh, that was 2015. Um, Pope Francis consoled fam- uh, the Biden family because that was r- pretty soon after uh, President Biden's son, Beau, had, had died. Um, and then they talked again in 2016 to talk about the fight against cancer that Vice President Biden was working on. Right. So that brings us almost up to the present, <laughs> uh, this Friday's meeting. So we don't know what's going to happen. But the White House did put out a statement saying they will discuss working together on efforts grounded in respect for fundamental human dignity, including ending the COVID-19 pandemic tackling the climate crisis and caring for the poor. And so we might not, the Vatican doesn't usually release a statement after uh, after these sort of meetings. So, but- that, With a lot of details. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> uh, they had a nice cordial conversation is typically what is was yeah, said. Right. Um, but Biden <laughs> might talk about, you know, more candidly what, what their conversation was like at a later time. And if you're in general wondering how Joe Biden talks about his faith, we, we mentioned earlier Father Matt Malone's interview with America. We're going to put that in the show notes. It's from 2015. So it was, uh, we knew him when. He was only vice president. Um, but they had a pretty wide ranging conversation. So we're going to link to that in our show notes. What's our next story, Ashley? So this comes from our home diocese of Brooklyn, where a teacher named Matthew Labanca was recently fired. He was a teacher at St. Joseph's Catholic Academy in Astoria, Queens, and music director at the nearby church Corpus Christi. And the reason for his firing is that he uh, was married to his partner back in August. He is he he was always openly gay with his school and church community, but after he was married, someone reported that fact to the diocese, and six weeks later, he was fired from both jobs. Uh, another wrinkle to the story is that he was uh, given a severance, but it was tied to what he calls a gag order that basically said, look, you can have your severance package, but you're not allowed to talk about this firing at all. So uh, he refused that- To sign that <laughs> To sign order. the gag order and instead took to YouTube and released a really, it was an emotional and powerful video, just like talking about how much he loved these communities, how much it meant to be a part of them, and and the real hurt he's experiencing at at being fired for this reason. We bring this story to you, um, both because it's close to- Ashley and I's backyard, and it's in our own home diocese, but this is not an isolated incident. And we've talked about this, I think, on the show because it keeps happening again and again. And we've said that, you know, it's it's illegal in the state of New York to, to fire someone for their sexual orientation. However, the First Amendment protects 
freedom of religion, and the Supreme Court has ruled that it's legal for Catholic schools to do that. And we've said for you know for various important reasons that First Amendment being protected is an important value. How, so we sort of agree that churches in general have the right to do this, but the question is whether they should. And I think we're pretty pretty clear that it seems like the only people that we fire for violating church teaching are gay people and pregnant people. Right. And something I've been thinking about as this, as you say, has happened again and again is the way we talk about causing scandal. Often, uh, you know, the people who are doing the firing justify it in that, you know, here's a person who is supposed to be a role model for these kids and is living in defiance of church teaching. And I think there's a different kind of scandal that we're not talking as much about, and that's... Um, if you are, if you're uh, a gay or lesbian student, and you you see your teacher being fired, you might not know under, necessarily understand the nuance of like, oh, it's the church is okay with homosexuality, but it's when they enter into marriage in defiance of church teaching that's when it becomes a problem. What you see as a child is my teacher or my music director was fired because he or she was gay. And how is how is that not also a scandal? What is that child going to think about their place in the church after witnessing that? Or their place in their family or their place in, you, you know, you can just point to like rates of self-harm and suicide among LGBT youth to see that this is this is a serious, it's a pro-life issue. And you rightly point out, Ashley, that itself is a scandal and it's one we're not talking about. And so again, this idea of you have the legal right to do this, but you really, should you? is a question that I feel like the church has to reckon with in a real and honest way. I don't know. I thought I thought that there were signs that this was changing, right? I think there've been enough of these stories that hopefully people are realizing that we're being uh, unjustly discriminatory against the LGBT population, but evidently not. And so it pains us to bring this story to you, but we feel like it's important to to say again and again and again, this is really not right. Now stay tuned for our conversation with Molly Bearhands. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Molly. Thanks so much for having me, Ashley and Zach. It's so good to be back with you. It's great to see you. I think longtime listeners may remember, but you were last on the show in 2017. We we had Episode you- Episode 28 of Jesuitical. Oh yes. my gosh. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's been a while. And you've been up to a lot of big things since then. So we're so excited to have you back on the show. Um, I guess, but first, the, in some ways, some of the stuff you do is- uh, I will say very complicated. And so I want to help break it down a little bit for um, tiny brains like mine. Um, you kind of start with this premise in in your work, which is that the Catholic Church has a ton of land. Could you just like maybe say how much land and what we know about it? Yeah, this is a great question because there are a lot of numbers that you see thrown out there, uh-huh. like 177 million acres. And almost every time I'm interviewed, I say, please don't use those numbers necessarily because no one really knows. Um, but we can make estimates based on, you know, the number of parishes and institutional kind of entities globally. Which is part of the problem that they don't know. <laughs> exactly. So basically okay. what my work is about is about, well, it's founded under, I would say, the motivation first is um, a realization that our property 
is first the most financially and politically powerful asset, aside from the humans, you know, of the Catholic Church. And a realization, too, that the power of property is not just financial, but it's an integral part of our mission. Mm -hmm. Through the land that we have, we can help not just restore the environment, but it's necessary to house the homeless. Mm -hmm. You need a place to do that. You know, to feed the hungry, you need to grow that somewhere. So by leveraging our land for good of the church and its people and the world, we can change the world. How do the kind of maps that you make connect the physical land and what we know about it to to that mission? Yeah. So first step is really just being aware of what we own. Yeah. Which, um, which, as you mentioned before, is, we are not very aware, right? Like, or at least the Vatican is not. And if they're not aware, who else would be? Well, they now are. I mean, Pope yes. Francis opened their property portfolio this summer, which is a big deal. Um, but when I say Catholic land holdings, I mean as a collection of what we've been mapping includes healthcare uh, networks. It includes religious orders. It includes dioceses. And the legal structures of ownership are varied all over the place. But so often the Catholic Church, whether in a county or even countries uh, with prelates I've talked to, they're the largest non-governmental landholder. And it's safe to say that globally we own more land as a non-governmental network of institutions under one umbrella than any other network. To make environmental you know, solutions come to life to realize them, you have to understand the environment. I know this sounds really <laughs> kind of self-explanatory, but, you know, if you plant a palm tree in Alaska, as an extreme example, yeah. it's not going to work there. Or say, uh, if you just are going to go say, we want to plant a million trees and we're just going to put these trees wherever, they could be invasive species, they could be in the wrong soil. So by understanding the environment, we can make scientifically sound decisions that don't waste resources and that really help restore ecosystems. Now, the other piece is that just gaining awareness of what we own in the first place to make these sound decisions. That's the most complex resource intensive part of our work. Mm -hmm. So the property record, digitization and mapping enables like once we do that, it's like, well, we should just figure out the financial and social impact potential. Can as you well. just to make this very concrete? I don't know if you've done this, but if there's an imaginary like convent or parish that owned land, maybe a forest, maybe some fields. Like what what do you do when you go to them and you're like, all right, I'm gonna help you map this to help you use it to, you know, avoid environmental degradation or to house the homeless? Like what are you doing? Okay, this is a great question. And uh part of the reason why it's great is because you said, have you done this? Yes, we've done like over 15 projects okay. and we made the first global map of the Catholic Church in history of ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. Um I'm thinking of an uh, example of a retreat center we've worked with. What we do is we, you know, map the soils, we map the vegetation, we map the slopes, we, you know, you go in and you really do this map, the, the properties, you know, bring in data from the assessor's office, market data, um, you know, legal data, you can't do things some places, you know, and with the community, this is the big thing is it really comes down, I would say, to not just the end product, but a relational experience that the process of an ecological plan for a property is not just about the end, but it's also a process that brings about conversion, I found, just even awareness of the land. So we figure out like, 
okay, the community needs X, X amount of dollars, you know, what's, what's the financial reality here that they're trying to make up? What are the current programs and their use of space? And, and then we do a dream session. What do you wish? And the great thing about maps is it allows these different layers of reality of where you can build, where you can expand, where the issues are, what the financial realities are. It allows everyone to come to a table and have a conversation and dream together and ground it in a way that you couldn't without this kind of spatial meeting place with meeting on the land. Well, what's interesting is you mentioned all of these different data points, right? Um, the financial, the social. Um, it's not just like um, having... I, I think a lot of us are behind in our conception of what maps are. It's not just this like 2D looking at like where the boundary, physical boundaries of a space are. But in some ways, it like brings to life a lot of these different data points, right? You can you can sort of see it more outside of a spreadsheet. But could you say a little bit about the type of maps you use? And maybe like just using like some examples from the from the pandemic, because I feel like that clarified a lot of for a lot of people what type of work that GIS can do. Yeah, this was actually the pandemic really like made maps kind of ubiquitous. Can we define GIS first? As, yes, GIS is geographic information systems. So it's basically the data-driven map you see and all the systems behind it that enable it, which is why, hence the system. I remember when I actually started this work. I mean, there wasn't even a global map of diocese, period, digital or not, that was unified. And further, I remember reaching out to Kara at Georgetown, who do amazing work with data. And we were all kind of in this space. And I, I guess I was really naive. I was looking for the at least the data set of U.S. dioceses. We didn't even have a digital data set of U.S. dioceses at the time. Which is funny. I don't mean to cut you off because like in some ways people are like, oh, the Catholic Church is the best like record holder possible. Because in some ways that's true because like baptismal records are they go back a long time but they're also kept on paper in like a fire safe box and your parish secretary has the key to it which is i don't know a little behind the times <laughs> well it's not even just that i feel like you know data steward or i would say knowledge stewardship was like an integral vocation of the catholic church like yeah. through the middle ages we were monks copying Aristotle and Plato and, you know, other scholars were really stewarding this knowledge. Stuff that wasn't necessarily ours, quote unquote. Even, yeah. But go back to what you were saying. Like, we, we didn't have, any, even in the U.S., any type of digital record of um, our diocesan boundaries. Even boundaries, nevertheless properties. So I, I remember going into this, you know, it was, there was no like, oh, I will make the first global map of the Catholic Church and we'll do this. So I, at the time, was thinking about becoming a nun. And I just remember going to the Benedictines in Erie, which is where Canisius had like a service program. So I got all Where you went to in. college. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Canisius is where I went to college. And uh, just looking out over their landscape or walking, we would do morning prayer at 6.30 a.m. and I would go walk the land before going downtown to help out with the ministries and just thinking, my gosh, we could multiply the impact of everything we do if we really figured out how to use this. You know, it's it's amazing what is possible with land. And you were kind of realizing this really before I would say like it became a, a burning issue in the Catholic Church, right? So this is before Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, right? On, on climate change. what Could you just talk a little bit about the impact of that 
on on you you personally, but also where you thought your career trajectory was going? I would say the the greatest impact of Laudato Si for me was courage. So I went to grad school to become a farmer nun. Yeah. I thought, you know, maybe I'll go back to the monastery yeah. or something useful mm-hmm. and be able to do this. And then I found out GIS and I, I did a computational analysis that I designed for pollinator habitat. So I analyzed 30,000 properties all at once. And, you know, after that, I was like, huh, you know, if I can do 30,000 properties at once, what about doing Catholic properties on the scale? And I was like, huh. There, like I said, there was no, oh. I was like, I'll go find the people doing this. Huh. Oh, my gosh. We're the largest non-governmental landholder in the world. Oh, my gosh. And there's no one doing this. I was. It came from a place of naivety, to be honest, and hope. I was, I was really like, well, <clears throat> we run the largest non-governmental network of healthcare, humanitarian aid, second only if you include all the member organizations of the UN, uh, you know, non-governmental network of education, over 54 million students last time I checked. And after that, so there was this moment of, oh, I'll find the people doing this. Oh, there's no one doing this. You know, and this is such a big idea. And it's so bold. And it's scary being a millennial and putting yourself out there in the age of digital media where people like today, I posted this hilarious quote. Somebody was trolling me about doing magic spells with nuns on the bus or something like Ladout to see the urgency of the situation we're in really and the year of mercy gave me the courage to look at this big idea that scared the living crap out of me about the size of it. And I thought it was nuts. And I thought, I will surely find the people doing this if I even start this. It gave me permission to say, okay, okay, God. And fast forward a little bit, you you start doing this work and you're eventually able to bring it and present it to Pope Francis, which yeah. we're not breaking news here. This was reported in the New Yorker. But uh, could you say what was what was that like? How did the Pope react to this information, you know, in the moment and then after? I had sent many maps to his office and letters and met with other prelates. But to give him the map personally, I gave him percentage of Catholics for diocese. And it was embellished with the cosmic visions of Hildegard von Bingen, my confirmation saint. And it was on International Women's Day <laughs> of all nice. days. And um, it was the first time, like, I don't know if he looked at the other maps, but this is the first time I can verify that a pope ever has seen the global flock. Like, isn't that crazy? And he was, he was like, well, huh. And I would met preset like you know state department meetings data security meetings ngo meetings because i have been as the person kind of pushing forward geodata in the church from day one i've been you know having to be mindful of the foundation of policy and security necessary to ensure this is done respectfully and responsibly not just geodata but land and at those meetings i've met priests and bishops from the Vatican and like the reaction, they call me map lady. Oh, you were the map lady. I remember <laughs> what I'm saying. And so we finally, he gets it. And I just think, well, that's nice. And I had kind of given up at the, at that point on the Vatican, to be honest. I was like, I had given them all these proposals. I had written letters. I told them how important this all is. And, and I, and it was done. And I was drinking an Arpole spritz. Aperol spritz. Aperol spritz nice. the next day, sitting, <laughs> waiting for my, taxi to take me to the airport i had these big maps with me 
And I open my email and there's this thread in like five different languages from a cardinal and a bishop saying, regarding the meeting with Pope Francis about Molly Burhans, I'm surprised anything went through telling me that the Pope had approved that I run a trial institute. So so you get this proposal from the Vatican to found this institute. And if I recall, it, with uh, basically no staff and no budget. Um, and a small stipend for you. And a small stipend for you. 30,000 euro or dollars. <laughs> and you turn you, you turn it down. Yeah. Which as uh, I told you this before, I think, but I, I think I, one of the coolest things about you is having the integrity to do that. Like the Pope, the Pope literally offers you, a, you know, an office and a, you know, very prestigious one, but it's not anywhere what you deserve and what the work deserves. And I wonder if you, if you could just like take me through some of your thinking in that, like, right? To like get this- To like, get permission to be the first female founded institute in the Vatican and turn it Which down. would be huge. And uh, you told Pope Francis no. Yeah. It's like we've been approached obviously by like you mentioned, I, the eating beans and crying mentioned in New Yorker. We have been so underfunded. Like if anyone even applied for like a grant program was like, yeah, we're going to get like over a billion views in media, mainstream, to share the message of Laudato Si. You know, so I've been holding this space with almost nothing. But we have had offers for support that required we give up the data about the property of the church. And like the Pope, you know, sitting there unable to pay my health insurance, being offered, you know, $20 million, they're just like, wait, but if we sell the data, you guys are going to have that. And like, that's not going to work because no one's no one's going to trust us. We're going to lose all our integrity. You know, it was more. When you're talking to like a private company that's yeah. willing to fund your work right now. Yeah. Or like even individuals in, say, commercial yeah. real estate or agriculture, big companies. And, yeah. and it just didn't occur to me. Same with the Pope. It was like, yeah, like you want me map stuff, but like we got to bring in like these experts and like geographic standards. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Like any any responsible geographer or cartographer who has who would have taken the same path as me or even person in, you know, property planning and development would not would have done the same things. And they probably would have quit before me. I mean, the naivety, I think, allowed me to be like, oh, tomorrow. <laughs> well, this is like a super important point that how much brain drain the Catholic Church is probably experiencing. Right. If, if you were not basically <laughs> a super committed person to the church and you've got this expertise that you're willing to bring to it um, in a very generous way, right? Uh, young people, if they've got that in whatever field, there's basically like three ways you can remain in the church and like use your professional talents in the church. And it's like, a, you've got to do like youth ministry. Um, someone in a diocese will probably hand you the keys to a social media account, or you try to be a blogger. And that's like really it. And you've instead, you've got all these people who are you know, still interested in the church and doing cool things. And there's, we, we, I really feel like we do not have an outlet to connect them with yeah. the vast resources we have. Like oh. what you said about the, like talking about the Vatican Observatory. Like it used to be the church that was doing the most cutting edge work in science. And we, it seems like once we've just kind of given up on that. And it seems like maybe you would have more success if, you had become a nun, and so you were giving away your labor for free working within the institution. But the church has not adjusted to this new reality where we're not going to have a bunch of nuns and priests doing this. 
And they haven't figured out how to work with lay talented people like you. Well, one of the pieces that they need to work with (laughs) lay talented people like me is property. Yeah. Because that's the only way of leveraging it intelligently that Mm -hmm. we'll be able to kind of finance this. And property has been just being sold right and left, especially with the abuse crisis, and just going through our hands like a sieve rather than being intelligently managed. Exactly what you said. Slow down right there. That was a very important point. Because of the sexual abuse crisis, we are selling off property to pay like... And selling it off often very undervalued. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you said, Zach, is like, so. Like, I would have quit. I would have no self-respect, honestly, if I had stayed working for the Catholic Church as long as I had with the amount of resources I've had. Okay. So I have a question for you guys. Who, aside from Pope Francis, is a single person in global media do you think has shared the Laudato Si message with as many people? Or not as many, but who's the second as one person? Al Gore. Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Well, who's Catholic? <laughs> oh, oh, who's Catholic? Um, you. <laughs> I mean, right? Yes. <laughs> like, and so, you know, it's not even just my commitment to the Catholic Church, because if I was committed, you know, I would have, I would have been committed to them treating people well. Um, it was that I broke so many barriers. And I think part of the breaking of the barriers was I didn't see my own worth. (laughs) Okay, like talk about complex psychology here. But really, like, you know, I just kept thinking, I'll do one more project. I already made the first global Catholic carbon footprint and we premiered at the UNGA in 2016. I'll do one more project. We'll make one more thing. I will be the first youth of any faith to win the highest UN environmental award surely we'll get funded after this surely I'll present another business plan I'll do another model show different revenue streams we'll create you know we'll iterate we'll do another one based on feedback um you know I'll I'll then I win another award and then I am this media voice that alone would have a communications team managing in any sane world and then Provosts are calling my mom trying to get me to their universities and 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 I not just the UN award, but Ashoka, National Geographic, the first faith-based in- explorer nominated. They say that in in the Explorer Festival when they're introducing me. This is, you know, Sierra Club. I mean, it's just at this point, it's been like I've had enough to survive at each stage. And we started iterating and we are indeed and we made the data and we figured out what is the best approach for dioceses and religious orders. And we also, I reached my limit <laughs> to where this is as big as a project as we can do with no supporting staff, with me working with all our pro bono resources from lawyers to other folks to do contract based, like a, a cloud of up to 50 contractors I was managing. And after that, I just said, we cannot do the next level of project with ICs and do it really well without without support. And at this point, I'm very Wu Wei, like maybe it's Ignatian freedom, but I'm just kind of like, you know, the Vatican can say yes or no. They can go find somebody else to make the first global yeah. map of the Catholic Church who knows the chief geographer of countries who make standards or yeah. they can they can, you know, they can go R&D and waste millions of dollars on the data sets that we've already made and the knowledge we have. It's a problem for the church in a number of ways, but I'm wondering what you think the solution is. Um, sort of broadening, getting back to my earlier point about like this is sort of a, a brain drain problem in a lot of ways. Is it the church needs to be closer to the ground 
and uh, on some things because I feel like it's pretty like I mean Francis has talked about it. It's just like in some ways very just self-referential. It's talking about its own issues all the time. Is it more young people involved in decision making capabilities? More late people? More women? Why? My question, I think, as a millennial Catholic, that we all we who stay find ourselves asking is, where were the adults in this situation who could actually listen, who had the power to get things done? What what's the cause of that? Why do you think why why is there this lack of listening to voices like yours today? Or I think part of it's about shame. To be honest, I think you know even more than corruption, understanding what we own and what we did own. If people approach that with a sense of shame, I love Brene Brown. God bless Brene Brown. She has gotten me through this pandemic with her wisdom. Um, well, Jesus has, but you know, <laughs> Jesus and Brene Brown. <laughs> Jesus and Brene Brown. You mean like a shame in the in that like you know we're a um, shame is toxic. A, a church, but our, is this shame is the root of that shame that you know we're a, a a religion founded by someone who said to like give away everything and be poor and we've accumulated all this property. I think that's part of it. Like like if we can't face it. You know, we can't do anything with it. And nothing is going to change in this church until we can be authentic and encounter each other and get rid of shame, not get rid of guilt, because that's part of being Catholic, perhaps, but not have it be toxic either. Acknowledge our wrongs. You know, that that's the issue. And none of the adults have been able to do that. And look at us now. We're all millennials. There was just a new report. People who are under 40, we will not live in a normal world. We are at risk of existential threat. You know? They need to grow up. Greta's right. And like, why does it take an autistic 11-year-old to say this? And then why is it that when somebody speaks up, like me, in private, as Christ says, one-to-one, say, with a foundation, they kick me out instead of engaging in conversation about both of our issues? And I'm not saying like, oh, I'm a saint and you're a sinner. It's just, it's a reality. You're like, I don't know. I don't know. I think as much as I would like to have a mic drop there, I do want to just quickly get pivot to this upcoming Glasgow conference where you are speaking. What's your hope for that conference? And what do you want to come out of that in order to sort of, (laughs) quote unquote, save the planet? I don't really know. Like that question where like you were like, why do you keep going? And I was like, oh, because I have broken all this ground for not just the Catholic Church, but all Mm faith-based organizations and these awards and, and the planet's on fire. And I have this data that I'm stewarding and like I have enough to survive really painfully. But I have enough to survive, you know, and that's why I've kept going. The duty in representing our church and faith-based organizations, which own 8% of habitable land on earth, and having a solution that is applicable to all of them, um, and some moral compulsion to not walk away, which I feel has been very exploited. Looking towards Glasgow, I'm very hopeful. I'm hopeful about the commitments for finance that we're seeing, actually. These are huge. We see governments, we see corporations, we see, so it's not all like black and white. You know, we see people are starting to shift and not just towards, you know, these kind of fabrications. There are real massive shifts in in the financial sector, in greening portfolios. Molly, I'm grateful for all that you've done for the church so far, for all you've done for our planet so far, and, and also just for coming on the show today. So we have one final question for you. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Any of these Catholics who have paved the way of innovation and never been in the New Yorker, whose work 
our work would have been impossible with. There's just a bunch of us nerds out there who are actually like doing really important stuff. Like how how of that works, you know. There's also theologians. There's you know, we see it even on Twitter. The millennials in the church who are like you know, have thousands of followers and are doing this evangelization and they're living out of their cars. I'm a good one. You know, anyone that's that's in this space, you know, that's totally like doesn't have any mechanisms to actually have them there. They all deserve canonization. All right. Well, speaking of donations, where can people support the work of Goodlands? Um, you should definitely say that before you leave the show. Okay. So um, good-lands.org. Um, we don't have a donate button on our site right now, um, but, um, you know, there is there is uh, information about where to send checks or um, inquire about especially larger donations. You can also email info at good-lands.org if you're interested in larger support. And it's not just, uh, you know, philanthropic support we're looking for. We actually have a business model that can work with patient capital. Excellent. So if you want to make work your your land work for good, <laughs> email Molly because it will probably be Molly <laughs> on the other end. It'll be one of my 10 personalities that's an assistant that I wish I needed. could actually hire. Yeah. Molly, thanks so much. And good luck. You've got a lot of cool stuff coming up um, and we'll be watching and praying. So yeah. good yeah, luck. Yeah, you guys too. Thanks, Molly. Much love. So part of me, I was down and out and nothing seemed to come my way. Here I go, here I go, this time I let it go, I never listen to what others say. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So last week we talked during Signs of the Times about whether or not uh, we still needed godparents in baptism after the New York Times reported a story in out of Sicily where a diocese there had banned the use of godparents in baptism for, for at least three years. Uh, that was more connected to maybe some concerns about the mob, but there there was a broader question of what's the function of godparents in today's world? It's, you know, it's not intrinsically tied to the sacrament itself. And so we asked that question of you in our Facebook group, which again is facebook.com slash group slash Jesuitical. Godparents, what are they good for? And a lot of you sent in some really, really thoughtful responses to this question. The one that I really liked was from a listener, Gabrielle. She, she mentions that I assume her and a partner don't have kids yet. And she makes the point that there is no requirement that godparents be a married couple, which I can confirm. My, I'm a co-godparent with uh, one of my uh, sister's 
former students who is a listener of Jesuitical. And it's great joy. But she makes she says she's going to uh, make a point of picking godparents for her future children that are single for whatever reason or maybe is a single mother and her almost grown son or any such odd combination. And she thinks that will be a good example for her kids because such people often don't always feel included in in church rituals that are centered around families and and kids. So I thought that was a really a really great idea. Yeah, and I, the one I was going to point to is uh from a from Joe who said he, you know, he's got some real experience in this. He did baptismal prep for 20 years. Um and you'd think he's he's got mixed feelings about it. Uh he says in many ways he'd like to do away with this requirement altogether because it oftentimes just causes hard feelings. Right. Someone's told they're not Catholic enough. Someone's told, you know, one family member is hurt because they weren't chosen. And it just cre- it adds this like bad energy yeah. around uh, what should be a celebratory sacrament. Um, but on the other hand, he he talks about his godmother always sending him five dollars for his birthday, which might seem silly or trivial. But when you're a kid, it just like always lets you know that there's an adult that's thinking about you. And so, you know. In study show, right, we talk about young people and how they feel connected to the church. If there's a trusted adult that they are comfortable talking to, you know, they're much more likely to stay involved in the faith. So it is, it's, we don't have a, we don't have a lot of answers, but a lot of you had great answers. So again, check that out on our Facebook group. Yes. And then we have another exciting announcement uh, for our Patreon community. That's right. A number of you tweeted at Ashley and I or the show asking uh, for our thoughts on Netflix's Midnight Mass. Yes. And I, Zach had already seen it. it. I binged it over the past weekend. So I am now up to date and ready to give my thoughts. Yes. So we recorded a special podcast for our Patreon subscribers with our colleague, Father Jim McDermott, who is, who's way smarter at talking about television shows than oh, yeah. either of us are. He's written for TV and Hollywood and all these things. And so uh, we've all seen it. We're going to break it down. We're going to talk about, you know, why it works as a Catholic TV show and just as a spooky season TV show in general. Uh, it's Halloween this weekend. It's a great thing to listen to. You can set up a, a feed to go to your podcast app on the Patreon page. So hit up patreon.com slash America Media to find that if you're a Patreon subscriber. And if you're not, you can choose to be one there for just $5 and get this extra episode. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. And you're up. I'm up. And I, I, I'm really <laughs> excited. You had mentioned that you didn't think this was fleshed out enough. Yeah. And no. And then it ended up being a pretty good conversation. Yeah. So uh, it started on Twitter, which is why maybe I, I doubted how substantial it could be. But <laughs> this past weekend, uh, you know, I was going through, going, scrolling through the feed and, and a friend, I just noticed that they had posted that they were looking for a Hail Mary for a family member who was going through a, a tough time. And I did what I often do, like it, kept scrolling. And then like the conscience comes in and is like, bing, are you really not going to say a Hail Mary? Like, it's, <laughs> The like doesn't count. <laughs> it's the least you could do. So I, I, t- I said the Hail Mary. And then it kind of prompted a little bit of reflection on my part and in, in how I view prayer requests on Twitter, which I think I've generally been kind of dismissive of, like, do do people really want prayers from strangers? Do people actually give 
prayers when they say they're going to. I'm here for cat memes. Stop interrupting <laughs> my cat memes with prayer requests. And the, exactly. And so that, but then it like it went a little bit deeper, and I was like, all right. So why am I so dismissive of people asking for prayers? That should be a great thing. And I think it, what it came down to is that I'm personally not um, comfortable asking for prayers on Twitter or in real life or in any situation. So, so it's really not that social media is the issue. It's, no. It's more your your issue with asking for prayers, which is funny. Yeah. No, I don't like doing it. I have never really do it. I don't do it in small mass settings where the priest asks for petitions. I don't do it with my friends or family. Uh, and you know, I was trying to think about, is this is it because I don't think it works? Is it because I'm just kind of introverted and awkward and don't want to like have that conversation? And I kind of came down on this realization that, you know, I, co- I talked a couple of weeks about how it can be hard to remember that you're not the center of the universe. But I also have this like inverse feeling where it's hard to even imagine that people would think about me, much less keep me in their prayers when I'm not like right in front of them. <laughs> like what, like how do I exist in their world when I'm not there? And so kind of struggling between this, like, am am I the center of the universe or am I actually just too insignificant for people to care about at all? (laughs) Uh, What a joy to have anxiety on both sides of that (laughs) issue. I, this, you know, I made me realize I, um, I also think that I have a hard time asking for prayers for myself in particular. I have no problem asking for prayers for other people that I know. Um, which is which is strange, and I think that probably says more about me and my issues, my own issues. But I will say that every time I'm in a mass that is in a smaller setting, and we're doing prayers of the faithful and the intentions, and the priest just says, "What else should we pray for?" and ask the people present to just name out loud. They're, my I'm like totally melted. Like my heart is just like torn open by this idea that people are carrying other people with them to the altar. And the effect that that has on me, I know that it would also, ha- I, I could contribute to that way of being church and relating to people if I if I wasn't so hung up on my own stuff. Uh, yes, but I will have, I do have a question for listeners to think about is, you know, where, if you could point to a time in your life where you've held back from asking for something you need, whether whether that's in prayer or just, just in your, your day-to-day life, um, what was that need and what was holding you back from, from asking people? Um, it's something I will be thinking about this week. <laughs> Until next time, get us out of here, Ashley. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation, provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.